Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. No, you're not listening at one and a quarter speed. I'm just in a hurry to get this thing started because I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, recently, we had the uh, um, the most euphonious of the um, uh, interrupters of John Podoritz on the commentary podcast, and now we have, I would I would argue, uh, the most earnest. And I mean that in a good way, um, of the uh, of, of the uh, r- the auditory rest stops for John Podoritz's voice from the commentary podcast. Uh, none other than my friend Noah Rothman. Uh, Noah, welcome to the Remnant. Thank you, Jonah. I'm very happy to be here. And yes, Ernest, tragically so, tragically sincere, is the brand that I'm trying to work on. Um, I was trying to think about like who you would be in the if if the commentary podcast was um a politburo um like like i thought of myself as a kaganovich um interesting okay i was i was gonna (laughs) say you were a a, like a mikhail suslov who was the chief ideologist um even if you're not particularly like passionately ideological in the sense that it's a it's a pejorative but uh, uh we can work on that um and uh i i've already done you a terrible horrible no good disservice because i have not mentioned the, the 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 prime mover of why you are here uh you are author of a new excellent book which i have blurbed full disclosure so if people think i'm a biased interviewer suck it um uh the rise of the new puritans fighting back against progressives war on fun just want to get it out there i'm sure the title and the book will come up a couple times in the conversation I hope so thank you so you were on like day two, day three, day two, uh, day publication two. day was yesterday, Tuesday, July 5th, um, which was kind of scary because it's the day after a major holiday. So you're competing with, you know, hangovers and cleaning up the remnants of the explosive devices you lit off last night. And, uh, you know, so, so far so good. I'm, I'm very happy with the initial rollout. I appreciate uh, your blurb sincerely and your guidance on this project. And, but yeah, it's, uh, it's early going so far. And uh, I'm nowhere, nowhere to go but up. But yes, it's uh, it's been it's been good. Yeah, the um, I mean the 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 tragedy of living in interesting times is that you really can't count on a good media environment for any book because the idea that you're going to plan months or years in advance. Oh, well, that week will be a slow week. You know, we had this tragic shooting. Um, you know, my wife worked on Betsy DeVos's book, which came out last week, I think, right in the teeth of of Cassidy Hutchinson's 
uh, January 6th hearings, which blew up everybody's schedules. I remember Byron York years ago when he came out with his book, pub date was like literally, I think the day the Pope died and you know, things just get, you know, and th this is not a criticism. It's just, it's, if you're a producer, you go with the breaking news and someone's, you know, years of work are like, I will try to squeeze it in, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've been bumped a couple of times because of, you know, news stories, but, um, nothing I think that's going to really be an impediment to, to selling the book. I mean, who could have known, you know, when I started writing this in or late 2020, that there would be a burst of moral enthusiasm among Republicans after the overturning of Roe v. Wade for 50 years. I mean, it's the sort of thing you just can't really, you know, see that far into the future. It doesn't undermine the thesis, but it does complicate it in the minds of the liberals and Democrats uh, who I spoke to for this book, who this is sort of aimed at. It's a, it's a conservative book. It's for a conservative book buying audience. But there is a lot of attention to and acceptance of this idea that all of a sudden we have this moral crusade to our left among a very austere progeny of the baby boomer generation uh, and Gen Xers. And uh, there's receptiveness to that message. It's just a, it's, it's a little complicated by the fact that Republicans are cultural revanchists too, always have been, right? That's, what, that's the line that I get around this with. You know, if this is a book about the new Puritans, which is a more interesting story to tell than a book about the old Puritans. If you were to tell me that Republicans were cultural crusaders, that would be searing insight in the late 1980s. So this is, this is a more new, a new story, and that's what makes it more interesting in my view. So I want to celebrate your Stockovite uh, dedication to uh, getting to the topic of your book. Uh, it, was, uh, it almost achieved Tevi Troy levels of discipline. Um, good, but it did, did step on my desire to, to ask you my favorite question of authors, which is what's your book about? So, um, why don't we sort of start just, um, um, I, I am one of the problems I have talking to you is that you, in some ways, and I don't mean this in any way, condescending way, but you remind me in some ways of a young me in the way that you reach for words that I, cause I like words. I'm, uh. Uh, I suffer from, uh, was it, a uh, philologia? Uh, I, I have a love of words. Uh, but, um, uh, why don't you just sort of like say you're, say someone comes up to you, say you're at a bar, not like, not, not necessarily like a bikers for Trump bar, but like a normal bar because you're, you got a flight in the morning. So you're at the Ramada by the O'Hare airport. And, and someone says, well, why are you here? And say, well, I'm on my book tour. And they say, oh, you wrote a book. What's your book about? What do you, how do you explain it to them? Right. Well, I would say, um, why is it that the sports that you watch, uh, and that's in the sports coverage you watch on ESPN is always accompanied now by agonizing over race and racial dynamics in America. Why is it that you can't enjoy comedy without being confronted with the out, out the anguish of the fact that somebody had to suffer so that you could enjoy that punchline? Why are the clothes that you wear, they have to comport with your ethnic background? Why is the food that you eat, uh, you have to be uh, confronted with cultural appropriation when you eat an Asian food dish? Why is there world historic import imposed on something as silly and banal as burritos? This is a semi-religious orthodoxy that progressivism is, has uh, in its DNA. Um, progressivism emerged from the ash ashes of the Puritanical project. Mainline Protestantism was uh, a, a foundational ethos that animated progressivism in the 19th century. And 
the sort of liberalism that emerged in the 20th century moved away from that. It privileged hedonism, uh, licentiousness, and a sort of, you know, just self-gratification for its own sake, even if it was self-destructive. But that turned out to be a passing fad as Democrats have increasingly, liberals, progressives, have increasingly identified more with progressivism than liberalism. They've, they've adopted its habits of mind, most of which are utopian. Um, and if the world can be perfected in this view, then it is your job to perfect it. And one of the biggest things that you see pure tendency and mental trait that puritanically inclined have is to dwell on the world's miseries at all times in every facet of society because a failure to do so is an abdication of your moral duty to make the world a better place. Um, The threads connecting modern progressivism and the old Puritanism of the late 1600s, early 1700s, and the sort of stuffy Victorianism that Puritanism evolved into, which is more of what we think of when we actually think of Puritanical stereotypes, um, are really clear, well-defined, and easy to identify. And it actually, it's a, sort of a decoder ring to help you understand why this generation of progressives are less open-minded, more austere, uh, more moralistic than their grandparents. Yeah, no, it's it's a funny thing, and I want to get to the intellectual history part of this, partly because that's just, you know, I, I'm the drunk looking for my car keys where the light is good. That's the stuff where um, I'm, I'm most taken to. But um, it is funny. I remember for years the Irving Crystal generation of neocons used to talk about how, you know, and, and Robert Bork wrote about this in, in one of his, in I think one of his books at least, he used to talk about this in speeches a lot, about how the Victorian era was a model for conservatives because it's true, it's it's hard, but it's not impossible to actually remoralize a society. And Gertrude Himmelfarb wrote a lot of these kinds of things. And there was a lot of eye rolling from people of my generation, uh, not because we didn't worship these people, but because you just looked around and the idea that a society could remoralize um, just seems so far-fetched. And now it turns out that it's kind of like they made their wish on the monkey's paw because it has remoralized, just not in the way they were like, this is not what we meant. We don't want to eat bugs. <laughs> um, so why don't you, why don't you explain the bug eating thing? Cause that's, 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 we both have this obsession. And by the way, the producer who you cannot see Ryan Brown uh, of the dispatch, he and Alec Dent, another of his colleagues actually did a video for the dispatch two years ago where they actually ate cicadas as a charcuterie thing um, uh, to see what all the fuss was about. And uh, I think the grand takeaway was it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't worth the fuss either. (laughs) Anyway, why don't you get into the bug thing? Well, I would, and I say I don't have any problem with this idea, and I probably would enjoy well-prepared insect cuisine. I've got a big, a nice, you know, open palate, and I'm an adventurous eater. Uh, And it would be lovely if the the people who are constantly promoting this devoted any energy to talking about taste or palatability at all. They don't. It's de-emphasized deliberately, uh, in part because that's not the virtue of this activity. It's not self-gratification that you're getting out of this thing. In fact, that's a little trite. Uh, What you should be getting out of it is the fact that you're saving the world. Just about every quote along these lines is that you're contributing to a perceived social good. Um, This is the language of morality. It's not the language of science. Uh, in fact, when you dig into, uh, in this chapter on food, when you dig into meat eating, for example, it is revealed to us as a sin. It is an affront 
to the Eden in which you were conceived. Um, it's a callous pleasure. It makes you a burden on your neighbors because of the health defects. Uh, it's a display of wanton cruelty to animals. These are all things the Puritans of the uh, 17th century were very uh, keen to um, stigmatize and anathematize. Uh, and you see a lot of this in the bug eating stuff because it's, it's a smug sense of self-satisfaction that they're getting out of this uh, activity. It is not gratification as we would understand it in the, the hedonistic, licentious uh, approach to life that was previously typical of left liberals. Yeah, I mean, it reminded me, it reminds me a good deal, and you have a great excerpt in the current issue of Commentary um, from this chapter. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of, which I've talked about a few times on here, Rob Long's theory about why the left turned on Elon Musk um, because the real anger these days about buying Twitter is different. Like they started to turn on Elon Musk like a year ago. And his theory was in part was that it was no longer virtue signaling to drive a Tesla because they were actually turned out to be good cars <laughs> of, of value. And they were actually moving into a middle class affordability range, which took the, the sacrifice of and the and the haughty condescending I'm better than you because I'm driving an electric car brand away from rich virtue signalers who probably had a gas guzzling SUV in the garage <laughs> that they use for special trips um and I so I mean it's it's sort of like the bug eating a lot of these things enjoying it would defeat the purpose right I mean yeah if, there's a there's a complimentary theory on, on Musk that I like by um Josh Barrow put this one out there that he's He's contributing as much to the environmentalist cause if you believe that you know individual automobile emissions are a primary generator of, of greenhouse gas emissions. So why is he so hated? Well, he's enjoying himself in the process. He's living mm -hmm. a carefree life. Right. Um, he is not displaying the kind of anguished self-sacrifice, this um, profound displays of uh, painful labor and self-deprivation in the pursuit of this cause. That's Jeremiah Burroughs. Um, you know, and a 16th century uh, or 17th, no, 16th century pastor um, who uh, very, who, you know, articulated what is essentially the, the highest Christian good, which is that you are to suffer. You are to be Christ-like. No one suffered as much for um, his cause as, as Jesus Christ. And it is incumbent on us to emulate him as much as possible. And that means uh, arduous labors, uh, outwardly observable um, sacrifices, and penitence and prudence and austerity. These are the sort of things that you would see in a quasi-religious uh, theory of social organization that's generating a whole lot of traction among people uh, who are disinclined to, to like Elon Musk, even though he's doing pretty good works. I'm more fan of the space stuff than Tesla. Oh, I am too. I mean, I, I, uh, in order of importance, it's the space stuff, it's the... Tesla, it's the Hyperloop, then it's Tesla, and then God, do I wish he would just walk away from trying to buy Twitter. Because <laughs> um, it's just an incredibly dumb idea. And the idea that somehow a century or millennia from now, when we're, you know, an interplanetary species, people are going to look back and say, thank God he bought Twitter. Um, it's just inconceivable to me. Um, all right. So I, I, again, I want to get into the, the, the rank eggheadery in a second, but just to, to flesh this out a little bit. Why don't we talk about comedy a little bit? Because there's this, there's this, I, I, I think it's still niche, 
but it, it's sort of like HBO's TV series, The Gir Girls, um, where everybody, sort of a lot of elite influencers and art section writers for the New York Times take it very, very, very seriously, um, and no one else does. Um, but there is a movement out there that to say that comedians who make people laugh are doing it wrong. So why don't you just sort of why don't, why don't you walk through that for us? Yeah, um, I so I, I to to make an example, which perhaps is unfair, but I don't think so because it is just an example. Um, is Hannah Gadsby, who's an Australian anti-comic, who is funny, who has punchlines, who makes you laugh. Um, but there are parts in her act, particularly a uh, 2018 special, Nanette, um, where she's very explicitly, very consciously unfunny. She builds the same tension with a setup that everybody else would, with a joke, but re refuses to deny you the release of the punchline. She will let you dwell in her anguish, which is the source of, uh, of her, uh, her comedy. She'll circle back to the joke that she told five minutes ago and ask you, why, why was that funny? Is that, is that really funny? And make you interrogate your sense of humor. And her fans do her incredible disservice because this is what they love the most. I mean, they talk about this like it's an assault, it's an attack, it's an interrogation, and they're enlivened by it. Um, but what she's doing isn't telling jokes. She's explicitly not telling jokes. Um, and that is a sort of a, a sense, it gives you a sense of the seriousness of purpose of this mission, that they perceive themselves to be very serious and sober, um, and also very socially conscious and socially aware. And it looks to us like fanaticism. The flip side of that is to attack what is so-called right-wing comedy, which is very bizarre from the perspective of anybody who remembers this sort of thing. There's a gentleman who I talk about in this uh, book who wrote an essay for the New Republic, Seth Simons, um, a couple of years ago, in which he identified the uh, origins of the alt-right in a form of stand-up that was popular in the early 2000s. It was colloquially called cringe comedy, and it leveraged horrible things for humor value, sexism, racism, assault, homophobia, half a dozen other social ills. And you know, that's a clinical description of dark humor, which would make you think, well, anybody who enjoys that is probably a pretty bad human being, much less would tell that joke. But that's the essence of comedy anywhere. It is to plumb the depths of human despair for levity, to laugh your way up the gallows steps. So Simons identifies the, the origins of the alt-right in this form of stand-up, and then draws a straight line to the January 6th riots this black swan event that had no precursors, yet it's, it's being generated now by this very mundane thing, dark humor, uh, which is a logical leap that's, that's difficult to make unless you're possessed of a lot of condescension. Nobody thinks that the performers on stage are going to act out these antisocial behaviors they're talking about, but you might. You, we can't trust. So you have to be denied this silly little pleasure for the better betterment of society, to create a more wholesome society. Um, this is an attack on humor that is very old and it was native to the right. It was the sort of thing where um, those who were possessed of a sense of propriety would go after very for similar reasons, Lenny Bruce, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, in part because they were so flippant. They were so dismissive of the great social project of our time whatever that happened to be. In Richard Pryor's case, it was very much the social project of our time. It was, he was very flippant and dismissive about racial dynamics in America. His eponymous show, had, there were four episodes, they were bottlerized, they were torn up by the network, and he was, he was ditched, not because he was funny, but because, never he wasn't funny, but because he was funny, but he was funny about the wrong subject. 
I'm, I'm going to do this in baby steps. Is your claim that this derives from that this is a derivative of in some in some ancestral way from Puritanism? How much of that is metaphorical? How much of that is literal? Um, uh, is your argument that but for the existence of Puritans, we would not have these manifestations? Or is it that, that, that Puritanism is a cultural wellspring that certain tropes and attitudes can be drawn from in different, in, in different ways in different generations? Yeah, I guess it's both. It's um, it's certainly literal in in many ways, um, particularly as you just said that uh, we are all the legatees of this tradition. It's it's got it's found a home in both political coalitions. It has a home in both political coalitions. It you know ebbs and flows at certain points in in history. Um, it is metaphorical insofar as the Puritans themselves weren't as puritanical as we perceive them to be in the popular imagination. Um, and this is a, this is something that scholars of Puritanism get their you know get their dander up pretty frequently on that when people talk about Puritanism they're most often talking about 19th century moral policing Comstockery and the sort of thing that was really not native to uh, mainline Protestantism or Congregationalism I guess in the colonial period it didn't have to be this was a homogenized society it was totalitarian insofar as it had a, a total program for society but it was not authoritarian it was wildly democratic, but it could sustain that uh, dynamic only insofar as it was uh, ethnically homogenized, uh, religiously homogenized, very little uh, commerce, the disaggregating influence of commerce was minimized. And, you know, while there were sumptuary laws, you almost never had to see them because income disparities were very low. Um, that sort of, those dynamics disappeared in the 19th century, along with Puritanism um, properly understood, but it, it devolved into what we what we understand to be this American habit of uh, moral policing, of uh, you know pol policing and, and imposing a sort of framework for how society should organize itself along moral lines, um, and that's absolutely native to progressivism as we understood it um, in the 19th century and in the early 20th century. And we had this little period after World War II when that disappeared, and the American uh, Puritan ethic ape was under attack. Um, by a very hedonistic generation. That, that book, which I cite actually in this book, was published by the Playboy Press and Hugh Hefner was a, a, a real articula, you know, one of the chief proponents of this anti-puritanical ethic, which he maintained was a, a weird construction and an unrealistic idea of how society should organize themselves, how men and women should behave. And that, you know, took over the culture in the 70s, took over politics in the 90s, was a relatively unquestioned phenomenon by the early 2000s. Um, but it turned out to be a blip, and we've seen the intellectual basis for this emergence of, ideal, uh, of, of sort of a morality on the left, which occurred during the new left. You know, there were the voices of repressive tolerance, Marcuse. There was, um, you know, a, a, a Dworkin, Andrea Dworkin, who was famously hostile towards heterosexual courtship rituals. Um, all these things had a very minimal audience when the order of the day was based around um, self-gratification, doing whatever felt good because it felt good. Uh, that value has fallen out of favor, but it, there was always an element of dissent on the left. Uh, and it stretches back in, it has its origins, its roots 400 in, in soil. It's 400 years old. Um, I mean, I, 
I think you're giving a little short shrift to the role, uh, and maybe you just skipped over a sentence or two of the role of the sort of the pre hippie, the pre hippie, the precursors of the hippiness were sort of the beats, you know, the the Kerouac generation of these guys who'd who'd seen war and were like, screw your norms, you know, I've been through the the shit and um uh and had a much more sort of the world universe with a lid off kind of approach to cultural questions. And then it becomes, I mean, I, then I agree with you with the narrative about how it, it goes from being an obscure thing to being sort of a, uh, not necessarily mainstream for the American people, but mainstream through the elite institutions, right? It becomes a mass movement, the sort of counterculture, you know, stuff uh, with varying degrees of commitment. Okay. But here's, here's my, again, I, I love the book. There's a lot of great oh, stuff sure, in that's, it. That's fair. But um, here's sort of my problem, and it has to do with my priors, right? I as you know, I like intellectual history a lot. Um, and if if there's uh, of the top five things that I've had to rethink in the last ten years um, or so, uh, my approach and views of intellectual history is probably at the top of the list. It's not that I don't think it's important. I think it's usually important. But I don't think it works the way I used to think it worked, where it's sort of like ideas are like escaped viruses from German labs and they make it to France and they mutate and they come to the States and no one could have a good time. Right. And I don't think that the fruit of the poison tree thing, even though I think you can trace back almost every left of center and a lot of right of center things basically to, to Locke and Rousseau, um, uh, I think that we sometimes get the causation wrong and that the the we grab i it's sort of like remember the, remember the critique of the first of the of the of george w bush's administration about why we went to war in iraq was there was this argument that the only ideas on the shelf were these neocon ideas so they grabbed them in a crisis and that's what they used and we don't need to debate that um but i think intellectual history works a lot like that too is that people are looking for one of your favorite phrases in mine, a permission structure to do certain things and they grab ideas to fit to it. And those I, and, but that underlying psychological, political, personal motivation has a lot more to do with psychology than it does with um, the actual merits of the ideas. And so for instance, I mean, and I don't think you dispute this. I just think this is a, it's a subtle disagreement or at least a, it's a subtle distinction. The puritanical, puritanical zeal, right? So let's, let's make it, there's Puritanism, which with a capital P, which refers to the actual Puritans on the oatmeal box. And then there's puritanical zeal with a small P, sort of like the difference between capital P pragmatism and lower key pragmatism. Um, uh, puritanical zeal is innate, to human societies, which I don't think you disagree with, right? And so I could find examples of exactly this sort of ethos in Lenin, Marxist-Leninism, right? I mean, joy is a crime against the state, essentially. Um, there's all sorts of examples of this in various forms of Islam, you know, that, uh, you know, even cartoons are un-Islamic, you know, and that they, they turn you away. There's some of this in Orthodox, in like hyper-Orthodox Judaism about not being distracted from whatever. Um, uh, this is, and I, I, I very much 
you know, I, I bet you can go and do this, you know, with the, with the cynics, you know, with Diogenes and ancient Greece, Th this instinct for puritanical stuff, um, in politics, I, you know, Jonathan Haidt, who I know you quote in the book, he makes this point in the righteous mind pretty well. It's like, it's really fascinating to me that the human, the, the part of our brains that give us this impulse towards, uh, for hygiene and disgust, right? Like is very close to the center of our part of our brain that does politics. And I think that this puritanical impulse, which I totally agree manifested itself in all sorts of progressive things is a more of a lagging indicator than the prime mover of this stuff. And, um, because I think you'd agree the average, pajama boy jackwad who tells me that my korean inspired burrito is problematic probably couldn't talk for 10 seconds with any intelligence about what puritanical ideas or society were about right he comes into this from a different point of access i'll let yeah. you respond no no, no I, don't, I don't there's nothing i disagree with there you could write every every society particularly those that are committed to a revolutionary project i mean there's a reason why you cited islamic theocrats and the Bolsheviks. I mean, revolutionary zeal, the zeal for the, uh, for the remaking of the world, you're zero and, and becomes a game of one-upsmanship and you, have, you end up outbidding each other and then eventually you end up in a show trial. Um, that is an, an, an aspect of the human condition. There's something native, I think, more towards, uh, it's perhaps um, um, native to re religious people who practice religions wherever they are, but it's certainly, um, a tendency that is identifiable in Puritans everywhere. And that's one that um, George McKenna, who's the author of this really great book on the Puritan origins of American patriotism, and I quote very frequently in the book, is identifies a series of traits that um, Puritans, uh, proper, big P, and I, I would argue their, um, their progeny, share. And among them was this tendency towards what he called anxious introspection. Um, that is the obsession with inward insecurities and the projection of them onto the external environment. The, the, the sin, the sinner, and the environment in which the sin is committed all exist along the same continuum. They have to, they, therefore, you have to break down the barriers between public and private life, in part because if you were to extirpate sin, you can't simply focus uh, on this narrow aspect of it. You'll be handcuffing yourself. Now, that too is a focus of many revolutionary societies. Um, but when we see this, this anxious introspection projected onto, uh, everything, as you say, from, from burritos to holidays, to fly fishing, to all this stuff is infected with America's original sin. And you can, if you have this, this theory of the world that there is these hidden workings that have their, and they're very historically oriented that have their, uh, that are rooted in, uh, America's founding and therefore the worst sins of America's founding, then you can find the hidden racist, homophobic, sexist dynamics in gardening, which would otherwise be invisible to somebody who's not initiated. But you are enlightened. You have the decoder ring. You are able to peel back the curtain and see the hideous hidden workings of the world. That's a sense of, that provides you with a sense of exclusivity that I think is very enjoyable. And anxious introspection and this idea of that the devil is at work in you at all times and that you must be particularly enthusiastic about 
um, being aware of his influence on you and on your external environment is one that is very native to the, uh, the puritanical movement. And it is so, it's so prevalent among the puritanically inclined progressive now and the puritanically inclined right. Again, there's sort of a role reversal here that this was all native. Uh, this was all very uh, familiar more to, to the right that was committed to moral policing and committed to finding sins where the less studious individual would otherwise not see them. Um, it, it's, it's sort of a, it gives you a sense of agency, of purpose, and of, um, as I said, exclusivity and enlightenment, that you're able to see this, uh, that which is obvious to you, which is invisible to everybody else. Yeah, it's, 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 you know what it is, it's Gnosticism, <laughs> um, which uh, is, you know, there's a reason why conservative, a lot of conservative intellectuals were talking about Gnosticism a long time ago, this idea that you know, there's esoteric knowledge that only an elect have and that they are, that, that empowers them to do all sorts of things. Um, um, obliges them to do all obliges, sorts of things. Yeah. And, 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 and the conservatives brought this up as a criticism, not as an endorsement, but I, I, so you said something a few minutes, a few, a few beats ago, um, that I think we should pull a string on a little bit because you argue, and I think rightly, I think it's, I was thinking about writing a GFA about this today. Uh, you argue rightly that you, you, oh, let me put it this way. You pull up short of wanting to say going full McWhorter and saying, this is a religion. Yeah. You, you say it's a, as it has religious qualities to it. Um, but it's really more of a modus vivendi than a full blown um, religion because in part, cause it doesn't have, as you put it, deism to it. Although, you know, the, the Confucians and others in the Buddhists would say you don't necessarily have to have deism, but, Fair enough. um, uh, no, I maintain that it transcends religious and political practice, that it is, it's a way of life. It's a theory of social organization. Right. Um, and I think that's right. So, but, so like, but you said as an aside, you know, probably because I brought up a bunch of religions that Puritanism has a component in all religions or in most organized religions and all that, which I, I think it does. I think I, I, I'm sure there's an exception. Someone will tell me that the Zoroastrians had no strains of Puritanism to them and I'll take their word for it. But um, I think there's a really important point here is that the the that religious institutions, particularly old religious institutions, are aware of the problems of zeal, right? You know, and uh, it tends to be new religions that have the most iconoclasm, have the most, um, you know, mobs, <laughs> um, because they don't have the institutions and the doctrines and the habits of the heart and the institutional leadership to tell them, maybe you shouldn't burn all those paintings or tear down all those statues and that kind of thing. And um, and I, and so I think that one of the reasons, like the, the Catholic church, the Catholic church believes that suffering is important, right? Hair shirts go way back before the Puritans, but they also, they also have an institutional memory to say, don't go crazy with this in ways that really, and so my point is, is that Puritanism is more dangerous when it's not aligned with a religious tradition. Because religious traditions, by definition, have limiting principles. And the stuff you're talking about has no limiting principles. That's very interesting. So capital P Puritanism dissolved, really not because 
congregationalism failed, that the church institutions failed. It dissolved because the state that it commanded failed. So the state was the institution, and you can go into, I go into this in the eighth chapter of this book. I mean, I don't want to bore you with the details of King Philip's war, um, but- Is that possible? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, dear listeners. Um, But the, uh, you know, so it was a series of events over the course of a half century dissolved the, what, what had been the unquestioned command that the Puritans and their church had over what we, con- what we would consider political uh, affairs. Uh, and the crown intervened and the crown dissolved uh, these institutions and they had to make an accommodation with the, with the crown, which eventually led to the introduction of religious liberty for like re- things you couldn't abide, like Quakers. Can't even imagine having religious liberty for tax exemptions for Quakers. Um, the, uh, the ebbing of this uh, unquestioned authority and, the, and the, the establishment of barriers between the church and the state um, culminated in mobs, in, in, in uh, you know, very famously the Salem witch trials, but there were others. That's described, one scholar I talked to, or I talked to, I, I cite in this, in this book, described that as the fever death throes of Puritanism, not, not the fatal blow, it was a symptom of its previously, of its otherwise, you know, lack of, of its institutional understanding. And the church hierarchy was, was pretty well established at that point, even though there wasn't really much of a hierarchy to say, it was just sort of a, uh, it was an institution. And, and the two things were, were really combined. But because of this dissolving um, covenant, that's what sent people really over the edge. Uh, and, I, and it was much more politics-based. It was state-based. It wasn't, you know, that the, 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 the theory of, uh, Puritans, a religious theory, the theology was perfectly intact. It was just the world was falling apart around them um, that led to some really incohate moral panics and sort of and pretty much discredited the project. I and mean, Increase Mather lived to see what he would understand to be Puritanism rich lo- writ large to collapse out from under him. Um, so I, I don't know what I don't know whether that's uh, whether I would subscribe to that theory. It's yeah. So it's I, oh, but my, yeah, but I mean, my point is more about. Um, so I, I agree with you that, I mean, I've been struggling to think about this and, you know, and I was, uh, you know, I, I looked at the manuscript way back when, when you asked me to, to blurb it and I hadn't revisited it since. And so I was going through it and the point about it's not a full blown religion, I think is correct. Right. It's, it, it kind of. It mimics a secular faith. Yeah, so it conjures a little bit of Chesterton's point about when you stop believing in God, it's not that you believe in nothing, it's you believe in anything, right? There's a little bit of that about trying to replace, try to satisfy the, the, the instinctual itch for religion with this other stuff. But it doesn't have a fully fleshed, this is why I think all important isms should have everything written down. Because that way you can not get worked up about the personalities, right? I mean, that's the great thing about the Constitution is that it, it, it decontextualizes certain things across time. And uh, same thing with, like, the Ten Commandments, right? And if you're rewriting the Ten Commandments on the fly with every generation, it's going to be garbage. And, um, uh, and so, you know, Hayek makes this point that he, look, Hayek loves science. Science is awesome but he hates scientism, which is the appropriation of science, the, the constructs, the language, the verbiage, 
the moral authority or intellectual authority of science and corrupting it towards political arguments and political ends and 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 convincing people that you're using science when really what you're using it's it's sort of like Stephen Colbert's truthiness kind of thing it's scienceiness right it's not actual science because science requires falsification all that kind of stuff and it seems to be sort of what you're talking about here is religioniness right it's it's <laughs> using the it's using the appeals of religion and the and the the instinctual impulses of religion but not actually for any actual religion it has a flavor it is it is a moral crusade a moral campaign and it insofar as you might associate that with a religion then yeah it fits but it's it's more i would say more especially in in the later chapters where where i have far more sympathy for the the idea of what the progressive puritan is engaged in is about establishing social order um carving order out of what had otherwise been a, a moral a moral uh, uh, anarchy that was contributed to by by the hippies, you know, by the baby boomer ethos. Uh, and, and this is not, it's not as though societies are confused about what happens when you have no boundaries for yourself or your loved ones, and you introduce a lot of alcohol into that situation and families dissolve. We know that that creates chaos. So this is an, an effort to carve out a sort of social order that is time tested and true. Uh, and and it's, because it's been tested and has been proven true. Um, and, you know, probably I think the most resistance to the skeptical list reader will, will, will take to this is that when they think of the stereotypes, the, the caricatured idea of, uh, of a blue nose Puritan um, would be, you know, how, how, is the, how is the progressive left prudish? How is the progressive left permissive or not impermissive when it comes to alcohol consumption? Uh, how you organize a family, right? I mean, they're, they're proliferating uh, de definitions of what constitutes a family these days. Um, and when I dive into it and I make what I think is a pretty, uh, solid case that what we're seeing now is insofar as, for example, just take sex insofar as the various sexual orientations that are proliferating by the day, um, are less about hedonism though self-gratification than they are about the various political programs associated with those orientations. This is an instrument of political utility. And in combination with the uh, labyrinthine, you know, standards that we are now uh, imposing on the idea of consent, both in private institutions and in the state, which is attempting extra constitutionally, unconstitutionally, it turns out in many ways, to define what consent consists of, we are creating a series of real social and legal consequences for individuals who uh, who encounter a signal that's misread or overlook a cue uh, or have a retroactive feeling about an experience, which is resulting in less sex. Young people are having less sex than their prior generation. And why wouldn't they? Because we've made this a much more difficult project for them. This is very similar to what Puritans, the real Puritans believed, not the Comstocks, you know, the Comstockery of the 19th century. That they didn't disapprove of casual sex within marriage. It was actually quite encouraged. And uh, Puritans had some of the loosest divorce laws uh, in Christendom at the time um, because they were trying to create a social order, carve a social order and create a, a family structure. We police that family structure today very aggressively uh, in the form of really over aggressive courts and child protective services. There's something like 20,000 children 
a year are removed from homes now for the for the space of a day or two days and returned uh, to their caretakers or their uh, their parents, um, just because we are uh, the idea of permissive parenting, this progressive theory of permissive parenting, which de-emphasized discipline and emphasized uh, learning through experience and affection, um, has fallen out of favor increasingly, and it's being imposed on the state to do the work of creating the ideal family, the primary economic unit of the Puritan world, and the primary social unit of our time. Um, in the Puritans' days, it was tithing men who would come to your house and ensure that you were disciplining your children appropriately. Uh, and creating the social order that was desirable. And today we have a, a different form of constabulary, but it's the same mission. It's the same idea. Um, all this stuff, I think, and we haven't even talked about alcohol, which is increasingly uh, distasteful, uh, at least overconsumption uh, in progressive circles, because you know when you have men and women in social situations that are bathed in booze, you know, bad things can happen. This is not a unique observation over the course of human existence. This is just a rediscovery of a very uh, old and tested and durable social order that sort of just fell out of favor from, as you say, 1955 to uh, maybe 2002, 2003. This is a new rediscovery of a very old value system. Um, yeah, I always like to point out that sex, drugs, and rock and roll is just a revamping of wine, women, and song. Um, but I, so I, like, I, I'm, again, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of this stuff. I, I, I think one of the reasons why, why your argument matters a lot is that like, I, I could very easily point out, you know, I mean, I, I've made this point about political correctness columns 20 years ago that, that 95% of political correctness is basically um, cheating in the war of ideas to sort of get your way without actually, you know, doing what you're supposed to do, but, uh, without making an argument, but 5% of it, 10% of it, some significant part of it is just an attempt to come up with a new set of manners that show respect to people. And like if, if when, when blacks wanted to be called African-Americans instead of Negroes or called black instead of Negro, whatever, like it is a sign of just basic human decency that you call people what they want to be called, right? And that's something I mention in this book frequently. Being a, not not being a jerk is a deliberate exercise, right? And it's a and, valuable one, right? And the idea of being of not being a jerk of having good manners is a very old idea, right? And um uh, and when I, you know, and I would make that point. I would also, you know, the also the humorlessness of the intense left is not a new thing. You know, there's an old joke from, uh, I have no idea how far it goes back, but I probably heard it 25, 30 years ago. You know, uh, how many feminists does it take to screw in a light bulb? That's not funny. And um, the difference is that, that this generation is that that sort of censorious, angry stuff has become the stuff of sort of mainstream elite pedagogy, right? It's like, we and this is the coddling of the American mind stuff. It was we are teaching kids on a mass scale in ways that we never did before to be really sensitive, right? To take offense at things, to be triggered, whatever the correct word is these days. And and that's why I think like your argument matters more today than if you wrote a similar book 20 years ago, because you could always cherry pick examples of humorless jackwads. Uh and you can always find examples of people saying you shouldn't enjoy your life. And yeah, you're right. They used to be more on the right than on the left. But like, there were always people on the, 
you know, you could find these people if you wanted to. The problem is that these people are now sort of more representative, much more representative. Yeah. And how that how that feminist joke imperils the progressive project is is only something you can imagine if you steep yourself in this very, you know, we communicate in hyperbolic terms pretty frequently now, but, you know, you to, to be heard above the din is to um, compete for the most urgent, most pressing issue and most, most, uh, most uncompromising take. And so that's all of a sudden this harmless little joke um, is a profound threat to uh, a great social good and, a, and an imperative social order that we're trying to build. And so your joke becomes uh, a, real, a real menace. Um, that's the sort of thing that you have to educate yourself into believing because otherwise there's no reason why your burrito has any sort of historical significance. I keep going back to the burrito because it's very indicative of the general, the attack on frivolities of dangerous diversions of idleness. That which is, and this is one of the Puritans, core concerns, perhaps the gravest sin is to be idle and to engage in the, in, in for sports and particularly art um, that wasn't a reflection of contemporary values and an expression of contemporary um, issues. Uh, this is part of the reason why art was so rare in the Puritan world, with the exception of portraiture, headstones, you know, furniture, that sort of stuff was just craftsmen. This is a record for posterity. Uh, that's okay. Um, that serves a productive purpose. That which is, exists for its own sake, that has no productive purpose, isn't, isn't just um, a waste of time. It's an assault on the idea that all things should have a productive purpose, which is why just about every artistic product, I believe, in, that comes from this particular political, social, philosophical outlook, has now has this plodding, didactic narrative associated with it that is not the least bit subtle because you can't be trusted with subtlety. You have to be beaten over the head with the moral and the value and the lesson that this thing is trying to impart, even at the expense of, of good art, of making stilted art, um, because the art isn't important. The sports aren't important. The clothes aren't important. The progressive mission is important. The making of a better world is important. And all oars have to row in that direction. So as the author of liberal fascism, uh, I'm very sympathetic to this argument, uh, you know, in the sense that you know, the Germans had this term Gleichschaltung, which basically argued that all society had to be coordinated. Um, institutions could be nominally independent so long as as they rode in the same direction as every other institution. Is that a German concept or a Nazi concept? It's a well, it's a it's the German word borrowed from engineering for uh, coordination of circuits that gets turned into a Nazi word. Um, it's sort of like That's what I'm you familiar know, with it with. Yeah. Uh, you know, Arbeit macht du frei was a term before the Nazis made it a term. Um, uh, but we don't need to get too deep in the weeds there. My only point is, is that I agree with you that, that it is a hallmark of all totalitarian or, or cult of unity political projects that independent thought and independent action are a problem. I always used to say the single most fascist thing said on a college campus on a daily basis was, if you're not part of the problem, you're part of the solution. I mean, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, right? And um, because there's no safe harbor, right? You have to care. You have to be part of it. And so this sort of gets me to, you know, again, I think the difference between now and when I wrote that book is that this wasn't mainstream sort of thinking in, in and it hadn't poisoned all these institutions in the way that I think it does now. Um, 
that said, like, isn't the fundamental problem just simply a lack of willingness for people to stay in their lanes? Right. Yes. yes. I mean, that it sort of boils down to that. a society wide problem. Yeah. If you if you're a great chef, you really shouldn't care about how post-colonial theory affects your vichyssois, right? I mean, it just and, and the second you start caring about it, you're going to screw up the soup. And I, I think it's sort of as simple as that, right? And you show you demonstrate you're you're vulnerable. Uh, a lot of this is the prosecution of professional jealousies, um, using the weapons uh, that have been handed to them by the critical studies departments on campuses, which have somehow migrated into every other institution, using the language. Uh, the semi-authoritative, quasi-authoritative language um, of academia to intimidate and, and to terrorize, frankly, uh, in, in order to work their way individually up the professional ladder. It's sort of hard to tease out what is genuine. Um, and certain, there's probably, frankly, a mix. that it, There's a lot of overlap. What is a genuine um, revulsion among the prosecutors of this project? Uh, towards individual behavior that's antisocial as they perceive it to be, and just an effort to get a one-up over somebody who, who stands in the way of your professional advancement. Uh, those, there's probably quite a bit of overlap there. But there is sincerity on the part of the, the people who are executing this project. Yeah, so that was actually going to be my next question, is how much of this has to do with just simply the younger... Because like when I came to Washington, uh, there were a bunch of Gen Xers who used their Gen Xiness, right, the new generation thing, as a way to sort of promote themselves for sort of generational affirmative action. That, oh my gosh, the New York Times doesn't have anybody of our generation writing for them. And, oh, these cable networks don't have any Gen Xers in them. And, um, and it worked on baby boomers because baby boomers, more than any other generation, believed in the importance of generational stereotyping. Um, and I always just thought it was garbage. But it's now baked into the cake. It's sort of been institutionalized. And, but I do wonder, like, like, do you think, let's put it this way, do you think the, the little Jacobins who emerged from the, the slack salons of the New York Times um, to, to claim scalps, uh, to mix metaphors, uh, do you think once they're in management that they're going to stick to this, you know, this worldview and this, this ethos, or is this much more cynical than that and that the second they taste actual responsibility, they're going to let go of some of this stuff? I mean, I don't know. I, that's a great question. I, I wish I could predict the future on that one. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how firm they are in these ideological convictions. Um, my, my guess is uh, significantly up until the moment that they encounter real consequences, financial consequences, and have something to lose um, for to ad adhering to them. But I don't know how long this philosophy is for this world. Uh, cults of misery don't have long shelf lives. They're, they're tough to maintain. There's nobody the I shakers. spoke to. Yeah. I mean, there's nobody I spoke to. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I'm close to Pennsylvania, so I kind of, uh, uh, this is, this hits close to home. Um, but uh, yeah, so when I, everybody I talked to, most of them are liberal. Um, most of them would identify as Democrats or liberals. They wouldn't vote for a Republican if you put a gun to their head. But th their enthusiasm for their life's work is being sapped by the imposition layering on top of this, this political social theory that they have to steep themselves in, educate themselves in, adhere to, demonstrate on a daily basis. And it's just become more important than what they're, what they got in the, in this business to do, to write comedy, to cook good food, to, you know, make, make 
nice clothing for people. This is the stuff that they love to do. They don't love to do the ideological work. Uh, it's rather laborious by design. It's not rewarding. And it's the sort of thing that is creating the conditions for a backlash. That's a quiet backlash right now. There's real consequences for speaking up. But that's a collective action problem. And collective action problems do get solved. It only takes somebody to jump off the cliff. Uh, and I, I suspect we would see that sooner rather than later. This is the, the argument I'm trying to make here is that it's to try to give, uh, okay, I almost said permission structure. I just did, but I didn't want to. Um, try to give you an idea of how to, how to fight this, this theory by just, by just living your life, by living a joyful life, by having the, the incentives and permission to mock these people who have made a, a misery for themselves and are trying to impose this misery on you. This torment is their own. It is not yours. They need you to share it. But that's a conscious effort, a conscious choice on your part to acquiesce to that demand. It's not a rewarding project. So just don't do it. Yeah. So it, I, I agree with that part entirely. I have conversations along these lines with my daughter. I've had these with various interns, whatever, is when you... I've become more and more deontological, but that's a conversation. That's a that's that's a bonus podcast content conversation. Uh, but when you let people tell you what your motives are, right? Um, when you let people guilt you into believing that you're a bad person when you're not one, like it doesn't mean like using a wrong word does not prove you're a bad person. It it at worst, it proves you used the wrong word. Um, and, uh, and the idea that you're going to take a word and stab somebody with it and say, see, this proves that, that you're evil because you use this word. Um, that only works if you fall for it, right? It's a grift. It's a psychological grift. And it's funny, you know, like I'm very, I, I hate when people will accuse me of racism and all that kind of stuff, but I, I, I'm more inclined to laugh when people accuse me of like any kind of serious sexism. And I think in some part because of the fact that I had a mom who like kicked people's asses in front of me and was like a very tough lady. And I married a tough woman and I'm raising a tough daughter. And I went to an all women's college and I've been through all that. And the psychological technique of trying to turn somebody into a bad person by playing on their guilt is something that, only works if you empower it. And I think telling people, look, you don't have to, that stuff can just roll off of you. You don't have to do it. The problem is, is and you talk about this in the book, is there are people, it, it does seem like part of this is a form of, of masochism, where people, there's some people who take actual joy in being told how bad they are. And I don't know how you fix that. I don't know if it's fixable. And I don't, I don't know if it's, you know, you're, separate out the, um, the moral, emotional blackmail that you're talking about from the self-satisfaction that you derive from contributing to a social good, to, for sacrificing for a better world, for to, um, you know, police uh, immoral, immoral, uh, immorality and probity as you understand it and establish limits and barriers for yourselves and other, and other people um, to create a more harmonious order. I mean, these are things that are satisfying. Uh, they're probably universal human values, not just necessarily uh, uh, puritanical values. And displays of great labor and discomfort in the pursuit of a spiritual goal. 
I mean, these things, and this is something that I've tried to do throughout the book, is that this all the books are, um, the chapters are, are virtues, unimpeachable virtues, values that we should all share. And most of us do. Um, prudence, temperance, piety, prud uh, uh, you know, harmony, uh, austerity. These are these are good things, and the ideals and the and the way in which they're working towards these ideals uh, have a lot to to say for them. You know, um, it's trying to understand your environment, trying to make for a better world, even if that involves a little self sacrifice on your part, is not something that we would otherwise look on as you know uh, selfish or immoral or even imprudent. Um, but it becomes more important than the actual value they're promoting. And I'll take the silliest possible example to illustrate this. Uh, in 2020, you know, at the height of the riots, right? There was this effort to, to combat police violence uh, and to combat police violence, not just in, in law through statute and reforms through uh, legislative affairs, but in culture, because culture was somehow contributing to this. The good cop archetype became something that needed to be banished from, from television. Um, you know, they canceled uh, Live PD, they canceled Cops. Um, these are shows that had done empirical good. They had helped, you know, catch uh, at-large felons or uh, wanted criminals, found missing persons. They had contributed tangible good to the world. The bad they caused was entirely theoretical. The theory won out over the facts. And this culminated in the silliest possible way in a backlash against Paw Patrol. <laughs> a series of car a cartoon dog show was dogs as first responders. Um, but this was sort of an attack and the times wrote this up and they were like, it's sort of a joke, but it's sort of not. It really wasn't a joke because what they were doing with the people who were engaged in this were doing were promoting a principle that no one would object to. The principle being that police should be subordinate to uh, elected officials. They should serve their communities and that should be, of a value that we uh, enforce in statute. That was not as important as the big booming parade of sanctimony that you had to engage in in the pursuit of that principle. The principle actually became muted in favor of these big displays of personal virtue and um, to the degree that it actually undermined the project they were supposed to be engaged in, which makes you think that the project wasn't really that important in the first place. It was much more about your display of virtuousness. We're running up on an hour now, uh, a little more, but uh, uh, if you'll forgive me, I wanted to kick it to the end to, to get the book stuff uh, properly treated, but uh, I've been likening you a little bit to, I think his name was Jack McGee, a little before your time. He was the character from the TV series of the Lou Ferrigno Incredible Hulk TV series. He was the reporter who kept insisting that the Hulk was real, but no one would listen to him. And I've been comparing you to him in the in this sense, in that uh, you were the first, and other than me, the only, but you were the first person to point out that like the actual coup of the January 6th stuff was that Mike Pence essentially seized control of the U.S. military when he had no authorization to do that whatsoever, right? No, there's and, no, no constitutional mechanism for that. Um, and no one cares. Right. I mean, it's, it's kind of fascinating that like normally you would at least think like the Trumpists would care. Um, and you could come up with a really fascinating counterfactual where you would be like, let's imagine that Trump was vice president and Mike Pence was president. 
and he did something like this um trying to take over the take authority over the military everyone oh you're horrible that's the stuff of like like dystopian you know thrillers and whatnot but because pence did it for the right reasons no one really seems to care i mean have you have you convinced anybody that this is something like to think about because i think it's going to be studied in civil military relations classes at west point at minimum for generations i mean i have to a degree like the post that i think you're talking about which i wrote up for commentary did did quite well and was was read by the right people and i know it found its way into the mouths of sunday show hosts that sort of thing but has it typified the you know the january 6th committee's approach to uncovering these issues no not at all in fact it's probably much lower on the ladder of uh, what they're what they're going after than i frankly think it should be i mean we are talking about the constitutional order breaking down the military responding to orders from someone who is not the commander-in-chief who does not have that authority that's freaking scary and it if it can happen once it can happen again the capital siege was unthinkable now it is thinkable it will be thought the seizure of the military by an, a constitutional officer without that authority was unthinkable it is now thinkable it will be thought uh it's the sort of thing that we should be at work anathematizing and frankly as much as i admire mike pence i think what he did that day was heroic nothing short of heroic um that should disqualify him from holding high office in the future so i'm not sure i go there um I understand why he did it. I understand that he had to do it. Yeah. I don't think you can execute the breakdown of the constitutional order and be a viable constitutional officer. Yeah, and just so just so listeners are clear, I mean, I know I've talked about this on here, but like what we're talking about is on January 6th, when when Trump was busy watching TV and watching the mobs, you know. Not to interrupt you, we didn't actually know what he was doing until Cassidy Hutchinson testified to what he was doing. We knew what he wasn't doing, but we didn't have any idea of what he was affirmatively engaged in. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it had been confirmed. I mean, I think we, we, there had been some reports that he was watching TV, you know, and some of those tell-all books or whatever. It has since been confirmed that, and this was always Andy McCarthy's argument, that the thing that, that the most impeachable thing Trump did was what he didn't do, was dereliction of duty. He knew... He would have been informed. He'd seen it on TV. He'd been asked for help. A government function and a government institution was under assault from a mob, and he didn't want to do it. He didn't do anything when it mattered. And that is a violation of his oath. And meanwhile, Mike Pence uh, called you know, Mark Milley in the Pentagon and said, get the National Guard in there and take care of it. And Milley basically says in his in one of those te testimonies that he says, you know, the Trump people called me and said they want to make sure that people understand that that, you know, the president is still in charge, but he didn't want to do anything. And Milley said that, that just sounded like politics, politics, politics to me. And then Mike Pence was very forceful and said, you know, mobilize the National Guard. I mean, that's Look, a Mike cover up, right? <laughs> They're telling telling the chief of staff that you've got to kind of cover up this, you know, horrible crime against the Constitution. Right. And so I guess my point is, I, like, I, I don't, Mike Pence is not my first choice or my second choice or my third choice for the Republican nominee or the next president of the United States. But um, I don't know. I agree with you. It's a really bad precedent. And what's ironic about it is that here's John Eastman saying, 
create this new president for, precedent for the vice president to do this terrible unconstitutional thing and everyone's like my god the horror and then the vice president actually does this unconstitutional thing and it's a combination of he's a hero or yawn and um and it's 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 weird i mean um, yeah I'm, an, I'm of two minds on this sort of thing if i'm i'm i'd be lying if i said i was very enthusiastic about this but if you're trying to be intellectually consistent on this issue which i am then you would have to say that Mike Pence had disqualified himself by virtue of doing something that absolutely needed to be done, but did violence to the Constitution. It's not acceptable. Okay, so does when does I mean I, I didn't know that you were going to go with this disqualify them thing. So I, I think it's interesting. Does Abraham Lincoln suspending of habeas corpus disqualify him from running for office again? It's it, and I would make a distinction that I don't know if is legal, but wartime is uh, and wartime powers and authority are uh, are a little different. Yeah, we're talking I mean, look, about, there are all sorts of important distinctions. The yeah. Well, well, the distinction here is is that this was not wartime. This was supposed to be a very mundane feature of the American system. Um, it was not an extraordinary situation. It was made an extraordinary situation. It was supposed to be, and ended up being later that day, uh, a rather, uh, you know, banal uh, transition. Um, so I don't know. I mean, this is an interesting thought experiment. But yeah, I mean, this is, wartime powers are just different. But wartime powers don't devolve to the vice president. No, that's right. I mean, look, I agree. It's 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 brave. It's 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 undiscovered territory here. I mean, it's 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 an interesting thing. Um, and I, but I just, I think there are important moral distinctions in the moment that can be made. That that what Pence was doing was not intended as violence to the Constitution. Was not intended. Yeah, it was absolutely. It was not self serving, right? And so, like saying of all the things Pence has done that I don't like saying the this right decision was the thing that disqualifies him. I'm just, just not because sure. I like it. Doesn't make it right though. No, but I, I think we both like it because it was the right decision, not the other way around. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm very conflicted over it. I'm just trying to be intellectually consistent here. I, I, I don't know how you adopt the position I have and still say, well, that's okay. You know, choice. Yeah. I, I put the blame. I just put the blame squarely on Trump. I don't put the blame on Pence for stepping into the void. Like I would not be angry at Mark Milley if he had not waited for authorization from Mike Pence and just sent the National Guard in. Like just said, "Look, this is unsustainable. We're going in. We're gonna. We're gonna. We're gonna quell this riot." You know, I mean, that's what I think Douglas MacArthur would have done without waiting for permission. And like, I don't consider that to be. I, I consider putting us into a hard case Trump's fault. I don't put that much blame on Pence for doing it. I just think it's weird that it doesn't get the attention that it gets, doesn't get, you know, or deserves. Um, I don't either. Like I said, I'm of two minds on the issue. To be discussed more later. Um, so I, I would like to think that you'll come on the remnant more often than just every couple of years when you have a book come out. Um, but, I would uh, like that. Uh, you, 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 I know it's nice for you to have an opportunity to get a few words in edgewise. Uh, it should be mutual. You were one of the first commentary podcast guests. I think that was 2016. Is that right? In a couple of years. Yeah. Um, no, I, I was on once during the pandemic I also as well. I think maybe oh, you were okay. on a three-state killing spree or something. Um, and uh, um, again, uh, the book, for those who may have forgotten, it'll be obviously be in the show notes. Um, is the rise of the new Puritans, and um, I'm 
I can always forget the subtitle and I'm like fighting back against progressives war on fun. There you go. Uh, Noah Rothman. Thanks so much for coming on the run. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. So Noah's left the studio and it was good to have him. And, uh, I really do recommend the book. People should, should get it. It's, it's, um, um, full of like really great concrete examples of the kind of stuff that we were talking about. I know that we sort of tended towards the, uh, highfalutin a little bit on this but again he, he kind of brings it out in me um and uh, i know we're both kind of uh fit a certain stereotype of, of hebraic fast talkers but so be it um and um i have many thoughts on this i will probably write the the members only g file today on some of this stuff because um i don't have anything else in my head right at the moment and you go with what you got um Fun on the we had a good time on the dispatch live last night. Every every Tuesday night, there's some combination of of the dispatch team on there talking about stuff, having a drink, um, on video. Uh, it does occur to me, you know, uh, some people have suggested this, and I'd be curious about feedback. Um, just put it in the comments or shoot me an email about it. Um, some people have asked if I would like do a video version of the solo remnant because for some reason people think it would be interesting to watch me talk into the ether um for an hour straight uh and i'm not opposed to it i don't think it would be particularly difficult i would have to put on a better shirt and comb my hair um but i also don't see the appeal i don't know if it's worthwhile we do think about like coming up with new products that um you know for first of all meeting the desires and the demands of our beloved you know audience and members um but also you know figuring out new ways to raise revenue, to break, to attract new people. And some people do this, there's video podcast stuff. So if you, if you like the idea, let me know. If you don't like the idea, let me know. If you don't care about the idea, don't let me know. Um, or maybe you should, I don't know. Anyway, uh, uh, we got a whole bunch of more great podcasts coming and, um, we're lining a bunch of stuff up in the can cause I'm going to be traveling soon. And, um, with that I'm done. So, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.